herzlich willkommen in Berlin. Hello and a warm welcome to Berlin, to City Breaks Berlin, episode 6 in fact. I'm Marion Jones, this is episode 6 of my Berlin series and I'm calling it Finding World War II in Berlin Today. Because yes, Berlin is a city full of resonance when it comes to World War II. Is it the city where it all began? Not really. Hitler was an Austrian, of course, and he was living in Munich when he first began to rise to prominence. It certainly is true, though, that Berlin became his capital and was the city terribly affected by World War II, almost ruined, in fact. It is the city which has done much ever since to recognise what happened, a city where you can find out all sorts of things about World War II by visiting places there today if you know where to look. And that's the focus of this episode, really. The places where you can find out more. So they would be museums, for example, the Deutsche Historisches Museum, the German History Museum, a documentation centre specifically about World War II called Topography of Terror. Then there are the places dotted across the city, Babelplatz, where the book burning took place. The Olympic Stadium featured quite heavily in Hitler's story. Hitler's Bunker, or more accurately, the site of Hitler's Bunker. The Germans very much didn't want it to be a place that people would go to to visit, fearing it might attract all the wrong sort of people, but the site is nevertheless marked. And then somewhere that a lot of people won't know about, but which I think is absolutely vital in telling the whole story, and that's somewhere called the Gedenkstätte Deutscher Widerstand, so the Memorial of German Resistance, absolutely chock full of the stories of the people who did try to stand up to Hitler and to stop him. I'm going to finish this episode in 1945, leaving Berlin in ruins, because you really, really can't tell the whole story in half an hour. So there are going to be, in fact, three more episodes to come, all related to the war. The next one will be called Holocaust and Remembrance. That story certainly deserves its own episode. And then moving into the just post-war period, an episode on the Berlin Wall. And finally, one on Finding East Germany, the DDR, in Berlin today. But first, before I begin my tour of the half-dozen places you can visit, I think a little history is called for to put things into context. Actually, this is a moment to mention the first place, the Deutsch Historisches Museum, the German History Museum, on Unter den Linden, which covers, in fact, the years 500 to the 1990s. It's currently closed. I don't know if it's going to go a bit further when it reopens, and in which one of the display rooms towards the end certainly covers the story from 1918 to 1945. And looking round that, you become immediately aware that yes, it is a good idea to start as far back as 1918 because of that thing called the Versailles Treaty, which left Germany with such harsh conditions that it had massive repercussions later on, when Germans felt that they'd been so badly treated that they really couldn't live with it. The Versailles Treaty then meant that Germany lost a lot of territory, Alsace-Lorraine disappeared to France, Silesia to Poland, and occupying troops in the Saarland for, I think it was 15 years after the end of the war. Germany lost all her colonies, the army was slashed to very small numbers, and the war guilt clause, as it was called, meant that Germany was going to pay crippling annual sums of money year after year to make up for the war and the damage it had caused. Complete turbulence just after 1918, very much a suffering population, malnutrition, 
lots of war widows, lots of disabled veterans, a Kaiser who'd abdicated in a completely new political system, and through the 1920s, rising unemployment and devastating inflation. You might have seen some of those photographs of Germans in the 1920s pushing wheelbarrows of money around in order to buy a loaf of bread. The New York Stock Exchange crash in 1929 led to even more economic devastation, social problems worsened, and slowly then began the rise of the political party, which said it was going to do something about all of this and put Germany back where it belonged, the NSDAP. The NS standing for Nationalsozialistisch, National Socialist, and the party name quickly shortened then to the Nazis. By 1933, Hitler was the Reich Chancellor, talking up his ideas for a new kingdom that would be called Germania and would last a thousand years, spreading his ideas on anti-Semitism. And so began a period when sinister events began to become more and more common. The book burning in Babelplatz, for example, which I talked about in a previous episode. The Berlin Olympics in 1936 when the Nazis planned every detail of an event to showcase Germany to the rest of the world, a huge propaganda exercise, as people realised when they looked back on it. 1938, Kristallnacht, or in English, the Night of Broken Glass, when Jews and Jewish businesses all over Germany, but particularly in Berlin, were attacked. And one year later, Germany's march into Poland and the beginning of World War II. Berlin was hit particularly badly by the war, in the winter of 1943-4, to four, for example, there were 16 major RAF raids on Berlin, killing and injuring thousands and making half a million people homeless. Worse was to come in 1945, when the Soviets circled Berlin, firing off as many shells in those few weeks as the British and Americans had in four years, and leading in just weeks to Germany's unconditional surrender. By that time, three-quarters of the city of Berlin lay in ruins. So, after that briefest of recaps, let's think about the places where you can go in Berlin today to find out more. I talked about the book burning on Babelplatz and the memorial which is there to mark it in a previous episode, but I thought, as a recap, I might just mention a book called The Book of the Burned Books, written by the German author and journalist Volker Weidermann, in which he writes about 131 different authors whose books were burned on this occasion, and describes the book burning itself in quite some detail. Several thousand people came, he said, even though it was raining. It was largely National Socialist students who burnt the books, but Goebbels, Hitler's propaganda minister, was in attendance and made a speech, promising that this would be, quote, the end of the age of exaggerated Jewish intellectualism and the breakthrough of the German Revolution. And here's what Volker Weidemann wrote about that. Quote, One can well believe him. He himself couldn't believe until the day before the burnings that the Germans had come this far, that they would stand by and willingly watch the books of their best writers being surrendered to the flames. This night was like a fracture in the lives of the 131 authors on the list of anti-German spirit. A fracture in their lives and their works and a fracture in the history of this country. And just in case you didn't hear the episode which tells this story in more detail, let me just quote the words from the memorial itself, which are a quotation actually written a hundred years earlier, in 1820, by the German writer Heinrich Heine, who said, Dort, wo man Bücher verbrennt, 
There, where they burn books, verbrennt man auch am Ende auch Menschen. You will end up finally also burning people. Written then 120 years before the Holocaust, but giving absolute clarity about why this was so important. I think I also forgot to mention in that episode that on May the 10th every year, so the anniversary of the book burning, Berlin students from the Humboldt University, just across the road from Babelsplatz, hold a book sale, spreading knowledge, making books available and reminding everybody why they're important. So yes, do definitely pause in Babelplatz. I would suggest as well, although it's not quite in absolutely central Berlin, a visit to the Olympic Stadium, because it was built by the Nazis, especially for the 1936 Olympics, which they were planning to be their showcase. For example, just at the beginning of the Games, a huge event was staged at the Berlin State Opera. Goebbels himself gave a speech at which he said, We want to get to know and appreciate one another and build a bridge with which to unite the peoples of Europe. The history book in which I read that made a point of saying that later that night in his diary, what he actually wrote was, This event was a major feat of propaganda. As for the opening ceremony on that August day in 1936, it was quite the spectacle. Started 11 kilometres away at the Lustgarten, so the little park on Unter den Linden, which forms the entrance to Museum Island, because there 29,000 members of the Hitler Youth were gathered to greet the Olympic flame. And it was then driven along an 11-kilometre route which had been specially devised. 40,000 SS men lined the route, Along the entire length hung giant swastikas, and along it was driven Hitler in an open-top car, giving the Nazi salute, all the way to the stadium, where a hundred thousand spectators, people from all over the world, were waiting. Another German writer, Oliver Hilmes, wrote a book called Berlin 1936, available in English too, in which he goes blow by blow through the whole sixteen days, from the 1st of August to the end of the Olympics, in absolutely fascinating detail. Here he is then, on the opening ceremony. The spectators are in their seats, as instructed. The Hindenburg, one of the biggest airships ever built, is circling above. The Olympic Symphony Orchestra is playing. And at 3.53 precisely, a trumpet and trombone fanfare breaks out, and it goes on for seven minutes. Quote, At exactly 4pm, Adolf Hitler enters the stadium, and descends the Marathon Gate's massive steps. He's accompanied by members of the International and German National Olympic Committees. The fanfares die down, and the orchestra strikes up Wagner's Homage March. The title of the piece is more important than the music. The point is to show reverence for Hitler, who is striding through the arena to his box seat like a Roman emperor. Try picturing that if you go to visit the stadium. You may also be familiar with the story of Jesse Owens, which also played out here in 1936 in this stadium. So he was the black American runner who won, I think it was four gold medals in total, including the 100 metres. Oliver Hilmus describes the wild celebrations that took place in the stadium when Jesse Owens won the 100 metres and goes on to describe Hitler's reaction to this when it was suggested that he might have his picture taken with this winning athlete Hitler snarled back, the Americans should be ashamed of letting Negroes win their medals. I am not shaking hands with this Negro. 
At this distance in history, these are the things most remembered about the 1936 Olympics. Were they a success at the time? Well, kind of. 4,000 athletes took part. There were more events than ever before. Germany won the most medals. 400,000 tourists were thought to have been in Berlin during this time, and they must surely have been mostly impressed by what they saw. And, as Oliver Hilmus explains, the success of the Games gave many Germans hope that possibly things were going to be OK after all. Quote, These 16 days in August give many people new hope that things will change and Hitler can be trusted to keep his promises of peace. I would definitely recommend a visit to the Olympic Stadium. It's not very central, but it's quite easy to get to. You just go on the U2 line or the S-Bahn, S5, and there's a short walk at the other end, and it's fascinating. You can look round by yourself, or there are guided tours. There are thematic tours, in fact. There's specifically a history one, but there are others too, a general sporty one, one on the Hertha football team, whose stadium it now is today. And there's also a history trail on the site, so 45 panels in English and German, which will tell you all about the story and the connection between the Olympic site itself and the history of National Socialism. Just one last detail from Oliver Hilmes's book, which I wanted to mention, and that is the fate of a man called Wolfgang Fürstner, who ran the Olympic village all through the Games. One of his grandfathers had been Jewish, and during the Games there were banners in the crowd reading Down with the Jew Fürstner. He remained in post, saw that everything that had been planned for the Olympics did happen, and two days after the end of the Games, he shot himself. He knew what was coming. And there are lots of stories like that in Oliver Hilmus's book, which, again, I really can recommend. Berlin 1936, it's called. The place with the most detailed account of what happened in World War II, particularly in Berlin, is a site known as the Topography of Terror, where there are detailed displays on all the stories from the war, and lots and lots of photos. The site itself is significant because from 1933 it was the headquarters of the SS and the Gestapo. It was largely bombed and ruined, but in 1978 it was decided to excavate the ruins and begin the preservation, and to turn it into a documentation centre where the story could be told. There's a very detailed exhibition on the main part of the site, and also you can get an audio guide which will take you round 15 paces very close by, the remains of the Gestapo headquarters, for example, and some prison cells which have been preserved as a memorial, so that you can learn what happened during World War II right here on the very site from which much of it was organised. There are many, many eyewitness accounts shown throughout the exhibition and featuring two in the guidebook which you can buy in English or in German, and I've picked out just three to give quotations from. The first one is from a lady called Christabel Bielenberg, who was in her 40s when the war began, and whose husband had been arrested and taken here to the Gestapo headquarters. She, immensely bravely, went along to try and plead for his release. This is what she wrote. When I reached the third floor, I was out of breath and numb with cold. My knees were knocking together, and my hand on the marble banisters was shaking as if I had flu. At each floor, I passed the padlocked doors of a huge lift shaft which descended into the darkness of the cellars. The atmosphere of the place was horrifying, silent, echoing and cold, deathly cold. 
a long, dimly lit corridor stretched out ahead of me. Number 527, number 526, number 525, Criminal Rat Lange. That's the name of the man she was going to see. I knocked at the door, and after a short wait, the door was opened by a uniformed SS man. And here, from the testimony of Josef Müller, who'd been arrested in 1943 because he was thought to have connections to the group which tried to assassinate Hitler, is a description of what it was like to sit in a cell listening to the screams of others being tortured in surrounding rooms. His hands were manacled together the entire time, during meals, during interrogations, all night. And this is how he described the atmosphere. Quote, that constant sensation of being hungry, being shackled day and night, the light that was deliberately focused to shine directly into the prisoner's face during the night. All this created constant pressure, which was exacerbated by the interrogations that lasted for hours and by the fear of direct physical abuse. And finally, from a report written by a journalist, Ursula von Kardoff, who went with a photographer to see the Gestapo prison in 1948. She describes entering the building, which had barred windows, and looking into some of the cells, one metre wide, three metres long, and relates what she saw. Quote, Everything had been cleared out, except the hooks for the folding beds. Piles of paper on the floor. So this is where they were imprisoned. Men from every social class, every religion, from every province and abroad. Men who were the regime's worst enemies, shackled and abused. She then goes on to describe a moment when something very unexpected happened. Quote, My companion took out his camera. Hesitantly, almost shuffling, he entered the cell. Look, it's still here, scribbled in tiny pencil letters, which was forbidden. It's still here. Take courage. I wrote that, he said, overcome with emotion. The camera shook in his hands. He had spent three months here in 1942, shackled to the bed at night. Somewhere else that people are keen to visit is the site of Hitler's bunker. And I'm choosing those words carefully because it was decided after the war that nobody wanted a site representing Hitler where the wrong sort of people might gather. And so it was all destroyed, but the spot is marked by an information panel telling you that this is where the bunker was, where Hitler and Eva Braun spent their last days and killed themselves on the 30th of April, 1945. You may have seen all of that in the film Downfall, how they married and then Hitler shot himself and Eva Braun took a cyanide pill, how the bunker in its site was blown up by the Soviets. There's a diagram on the panel which shows what was there, 36 different rooms, bedrooms, living quarters, stores, offices... Perhaps most bizarrely, one room marked Eva's Ankleiderraum, which means Eva's dressing room. And there's mention too of a terrible story also connected with this building, that of the family of Josef Goebbels, Hitler's propaganda minister, whose last days were also spent here. Goebbels and his wife Magda had moved themselves and their family, six children, into the bunker on the 22nd of April 1945, so the day before the Red Army arrived. Goebbels pledged his loyalty to Hitler right to the end and said that he couldn't possibly leave Berlin for, as he put it, reasons of humanity and personal loyalty. He and his wife Magda devised a devastating plan which would lead to the death of themselves and all their children. They summoned an SS dentist who gave them morphine 
with which they injected their children to make them unconscious, and then they crushed cyanide into their mouths. All six were killed, and the parents then went on to take their own lives. Whatever you think about the adults involved, the story of the children's fate is surely one of those terrible things you could possibly ever hear. There was a radio operator, one Rojos Mish, working down there, and he wrote about seeing the children the night before they were killed, sitting around a table, having their hair combed before bed, and laughing and playing. Four-year-old Haida, he said, turned round to look at him as she was being taken off to bed, and giggled and said, Mish, Mish, so that's his name, Du bist ein Fisch, you are a fish. And then she disappeared, along with the five other children. In 2005, that same radio operator, Rojos Mish, attracted controversy by suggesting that a memorial plaque should be installed for the children. But many disagreed, and I don't think it's been done. I think the least we can do is remember their names and ages. Helga, 12. Hildegard, 11. Helmut, the only boy, 9. Holdina, 8. Hedwig, 7. And Heidrun, 4. Just a horrendous story. And then lastly, I'd like to mention a building called the German Resistance Memorial Center, or Gedenkstätte Deutscher Widerstand in German, which exists to remember those Germans who tried to stand up to Hitler, many of whom lost their lives for doing so. It too is in a building with much historical significance, just across the road from the current Ministry of Defence. It's in somewhere called the Bendler Block, which was used by the German High Command during the war and which now has become a memorial. It's a large museum, really, or exhibition centre, several floors of little rooms, full of documents and photos and stories, probably for most people somewhere to wander through and get an idea of the scale of resistance, rather than memorise too much detail. Certainly what I found when I wandered round was that I had had absolutely no idea how many thousands and thousands of people had tried to oppose Hitler and the National Socialist regime. There are whole rooms dedicated to the workers' movement, to Christians, to artists and intellectuals, to young people. For example, the Munich students, Hans and Sophie Scholl, who founded the White Rose, the Weisse Rosa resistance movement, and who were executed, both in their early 20s, for saying publicly that they disagreed with what Hitler was saying. Just so many stories and photographs and documents and quotations. I've picked out just a couple to mention. The first is somebody I hadn't heard of before, the Roman Catholic Bishop of Berlin, who has the most wonderful name, which I must read out in full. Here you go. Johann Konrad Maria Augustin Felix Graf von Preising Lichtenegmus. This stupendously brave man opposed the Nazis right from the start, as early as 1933, when they were elected to power, he said, Berlin has fallen into the hands of criminals and fools. He was outspoken throughout the war, commanded considerable respect from many Germans, and the Gestapo didn't dare arrest him because of that. Amazingly, he did manage to survive the war and was made a cardinal by the Pope afterwards because of his resistance work. Someone possibly much better known, to whom there's a whole suite of rooms devoted on one floor of this museum, is Colonel Klaus von Stauffenberg, known for having tried to assassinate Hitler in the July plot on the 20th of July, 
1944. He was present at a military HQ in East Prussia, at which Hitler was due to speak, and he placed a bomb in a briefcase just where the Führer was going to be standing. Unfortunately, it was moved behind a table leg just before it exploded, so Hitler escaped. The story is related in Berlin, the story of a city, written by Barney White Spanner, who explains what happened next. What might have happened had Hitler been killed has prompted many hours of debate, but the conspirators' plan was to overthrow the government and talk to the Allied powers, who by then had staged the successful D-Day landings in France. Instead, Stauffenberg and his immediate accomplices were rounded up and shot that evening in the Bendler Block courtyard. Inside the museum, you can see the room which was von Stauffenberg's office, the place from which he planned this attack. There's a large display of the facts of the story, and outside, in the courtyard, there is a plaque to mark the spot where he and his fellow conspirators were executed. It gives the date, the 20th of July, 1944. It lists all five names, including his, Oberst Klaus Graf Schenk von Stauffenberg. And there's a dedication, in German, but which in English would read, You did not bear the shame. You sacrificed your lives for Freiheit, freedom, Recht, justice, und Ehre, and honour. So then, in their different ways, all those places which I've listed will help you piece together the story of World War II in Berlin, in many cases exactly on the spot where these momentous events happened. But there's so much more to say about World War II and Berlin. Three episodes worth, in fact, because I'm planning in the next episode to talk about the Holocaust and Remembrance. Berlin is a city where it's held very important to remember all those things. And there are a number of different places in the city where you can do that, so I'm going to go through them and tell their story. After that, there'll be an episode on the Berlin Wall, the immediate aftermath for the city of Berlin of all of this. And finally, fourth in the sequence, the story of East Germany and East Berlin, and where in the city today you can go to find out more about that, by which time, hopefully, we will have told the story properly. So, I hope you look forward to joining me for some, or hopefully all of those things. Please don't forget that there are nine other cities in the City Breaks series, all taking the same approach, so places to visit, with the history and stories behind them told, so that hopefully when you get there, you feel more fully informed, or perhaps even if you're not going and are just interested from a historical point of view, there will still be something for you in those series. There's London and Paris, there's Florence, Munich, Seville, Toulouse, St. Petersburg, Bath and Edinburgh. Also, I probably ought to add that recently I've been adding much to the blog on the website. So for the Berlin series, as we go along, there'll be a blog post to go with every episode, a summary of the contents and a good range of ideas for further reading and links to all the places mentioned. It's going to be quite a task to do that for all the other cities, but a start has been made, and I'm adding blog posts for the Paris series as quickly as I can. Do have a look, it's all on the website, www.citybreakspodcast.co.uk And so, I leave you then with my thanks for listening to this episode, and hope I may look forward to your company again next time. So for now then, vielen Dank und auf Wiederhören. Many thanks and goodbye.